I'm Jeff Ado. This is Lunacy, where we discern the sacred from the insane and admit that whether we like it or not, we are all profoundly affected by the cycles of the moon. How? All right. My guest today is none other than my good friend, Arez Asher, who wrote this amazing book called Feel Love Now. It's a very good book. It's uh, kind of an instruction manual, and there's also a lot of different movements and practices that go along with it. It's really well done, my friend. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. A lot. So I'm super stoked to have you on the show so I can ask you questions about your writings. You know what I mean? Yeah. Happy to answer them. Is there anything that people should know about you that you want to introduce yourself as? Yes. I like to introduce myself as a systemic wellness advisor. Okay. And people often ask, well, what is that? Yeah. What is that? (laughs) And what that is, is based on the understanding that wellness is an increased ability to function. Okay. Which is the opposite of illness being a decreased ability to function. Okay. And so what it means to be a systemic wellness advisor is that I advise people and organizations how to increase the ability to function systemically as a whole and how the parts interoperate instead of being focused in on one little niche, one little tiny perspective. It's about how everything works together. And that's basically the whole basis of Feel Love Now is addressing wellness and stability in one's life, not only from a physical perspective, but also from an emotional perspective, a mental perspective and a spiritual perspective. Because they all interrelate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right on. Okay, I can get that. I can dig it. You know what I mean? There's a lot of objectivity coming out of this guy's mouth. All right, basically, and his pen, so to speak, or whatever, keyboard, whatever you use these days. You use like a feather to write? Is that what you're doing? I use a MacBook Pro. Okay, all right, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, I'd like to know, I feel like Feel Love Now, is a, it's a pretty demanding title. So Demanding title? Yeah, it's pretty demanding. Feel Love Now. It's, you know, it's pretty demanding. So, well, you know, it was meant, it was meant not to be exclamation marks in there. It was meant right. to, to be, you know, a, a much calmer. Right. <laughs> and there's a reason for this. But it's, it's more fun to say it. Feel love now. If you for are. Me. Oh, for you. Okay. I for me. You. I hear you. Yeah. And I'm sure everybody else is interpreting that way too. So I have some <laughs> alternative titles, which I'd like to run by you. Okay. Go for it. And they're free for you. But of course... If you use them, I just take 70%. So here we go. Ready? Generosity is appreciated. Yes. Have you considered changing feel love now to feel love maybe sometime if you want to no obligation? I think I know a few guys that are talk like that and I don't think that works very well for them. Okay. So uh, good to know that it's one option. What about feel love later? I think a lot of people are feeling love later. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that's it's kind of pretty covered. Pretty well pretty covered. Much that's done. Okay. That's boring. I got it. How about feel love at some point, perhaps if and when I complete my processing? I think that was me throughout much of my twenties. Okay. So I think I've, you know, gone beyond that and incorporated some more recent things into the book. Okay, good. What about trauma, trauma, trauma? Ain't it great? That was much of my twenties as well. But yeah, I think that I, that I, I hope that would sell, but maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. Okay. How about feel love at Christmas, but only if I get all the stuff I asked for? Yeah, I think the subtitle could be, you know, something in regards to pleading with Santa. I think we can. Yeah, well, good. That's my next suggestion is 
Feel Santa now. <laughs> come, come here, Santa, right now. Yeah, we can we can change the book completely to suit your change in title. Okay, also. Good. that's great. Uh, that'll be the the eighth edition, perhaps. You know. Perfect. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for indulging my ridiculousness. So, first of all, I just want to say this is a really, really great book. You know, one of the things that it's I'm going to say this for anybody who's interested. It's I wouldn't say like it's an easy read. Because it really, it's really asking you to look, take a hard look at how you perceive reality and how you perceive your life and how you perceive love and really like kind of be straight about your own bullshit, which of course is, I'm all about that life. It's not an easy book to read, but it is a really enlightening book to read. And the practices that you have set up, including there's some like breathing yoga practices and some mental meditations that you have set up are really profound. And very, you know, if you take it seriously, if you're really actually interested in transforming your life, in feeling love now, this is a really good book to check out. Okay, feel love now. Dig it. Know what I mean? Okay, so let's get let's get into it, shall we? I think we shall. So you say in the book, over the 18 months it took to develop this book, I purposefully created physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual instability in my own life by living in several dozen locations in 12 countries on three continents with no real income. Correct. For you to explain, you know, because how is it that you're, you're writing this book, you had no money, you're all over the place, like some kind of crazy hobo, you know? Well, I got to say that living at the time throughout much of the, let's just say, Less expensive parts of the world is actually a comparable or cheaper than living in Santa Monica. Hmm. So I was finding that my general cost of living for if I had written the book, just being at home in Santa Monica versus bouncing around the world and was actually about the same. Hmm. And it was more like, okay, instead of being in my comfort zone, in my familiar place, in my safety bubble, yeah. where I have my friends and my you know patterns and my gym and all that. Uh-huh. Okay, let's go ahead and throw all that out the window and go into places where I don't speak the language, where I have to find where am I going to stay now? Where am I? Who am I going to meet? How am I going to interact? Creating that level of instability so that there was no reliance upon the usual outs- sources outside of myself. Hmm. So you intentionally put yourself into an uncomfortable place. So that you could really prove your premise that you can feel love now. Is that correct? I, well, it's more about creating stability and wellness in one's life, right? The title Feel Love Now is actually meant to be a memory aid okay, to remind people what to do when they don't know what to do. Right. Okay. It's just part, pardon me for interpreting a little bit because I did read the book. Okay, Bobs. Yes, please. Uh, what you're saying is step one, feel. Mm-hmm. Step, step two, love, mm-hmm. connect to love. And then step three, now recognize that here we are in this moment right now. This yeah. is all there is. Yeah, because we can only feel now. We can't feel the past. We can't feel the future. Mm-hmm. We can only love now. We can't love the past. We can't love the future. We can love our, you know, we can appreciate and like the ideas that we have about the past and about the future. We can like them. Mm-hmm. But the action of loving is what we do in the present moment. Right. And there is no other place for that, really, than right here, right now. Uh, Right now and every now. When you fully feel your emotions without reacting to them, you become more stable within yourself. When you're no longer reacting to your feelings, you are truly free to be the person you choose to be. Let me try that again. When you fully feel your emotions without reacting to them, you become more stable within yourself. 
when you're no longer reacting to your feelings, when you're no longer reacting to your feelings, you are truly free to be the person you choose to be. What do you to explain, man? You know? Sure, sure. When we are caught up in our reactions, like, okay, someone does something I don't like, and I'm like, right. Now I'm caught up in my reactions. I'm not free to choose. I don't feel free to choose how I'm responding because I've already, you know, automatically re- reacted. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to go into a mode of or, or whatever and make it about what they did. I am a sovereign being. I can choose to respond any way I, I like. Mm-hmm. I can be, you know, unaffected completely. I can be amused. I can be appreciating the irony or the difference, or I can do lots of different things. And so when I am being really clear about, okay, there is, an, there is something that I'm feeling, but it is always up to me how I'm choosing to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And that takes a process. Yeah. It's a process of maturing yeah. to be able to do that. And, and people that have, tr- have learned are in a much better position to, to not be so influenced and effectively controlled by other people's behavior. Yeah. And their own feelings and just being reactive. I mean, what's interesting, what comes up for me when you describe that is, you know, it's a difference between having feelings and feelings having you, you know, mm-hmm, where sure. either I like, I have my feelings, I recognize my feelings, but I'm not governed by those feelings. I have a choice to make in the present as to whether or not I'm going to respond, how I'm going to respond and what I'm going to say in response to those feelings. So that's beautiful. Good. I like it. So one of the things you talk about in your books is, is you say you don't need, you don't need to believe that you believe something in order to actually believe it. Instead, you can simply believe something without being aware that you believe it. Yes. This I find absolutely fascinating because you don't need to believe that you believe something in order to actually believe it. Instead, you can simply believe something without being aware that you believe it. Yes. Which I think is absolutely fascinating because, you know, ignorance is so prevalent in our society and it's such the enemy of enlightenment in our day and age. And, and the unexamined life is not worth limit living. Right. Who said that? Socrates. Yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, uh, yeah. Although he would have said it in Greek. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say it in Greek? No. Okay. No, I cannot, which is why this I didn't remember fun, it. Because Eros knows like a lot. But he, I, Greek is not something I, I okay, know. Okay. Really. He doesn't know a, Greek. A few words here and there. Yeah. So the unexamined life is not worth living. Socrates. Good. That's, that's a good quote. I, I prefer know thyself. Know thyself is a good one too. Yeah. They both relate to what you're pointing to, which is that you don't have to believe something. You don't have to... Believe that you believe it in order to believe it. You don't it. need to believe that you believe something in order to actually believe it. Instead, you can simply believe something without being aware that you believe it, mm-hmm. which points to all of the subconscious belief structures and limiting beliefs that we have in our background based on shit that happened in our past that's haunting us currently, right? Sure. I mean, there's all these things. So, so let's put it this way. Our beliefs and our belief structures are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. We're updating them. Right. Okay. It's, it's an evolving organism in, in a way or an evolving set of information. And there's also degrees of strength. Like how much, how strongly do you believe something? Mm-hmm. Could I believe it? Oh, maybe well, a little bit. Or is it something like, oh yeah, this is something I really feel very, very, very clear about. So there's such a wide variety and complexity to belief structures. 
And so uh, this allows us to have different, differing degrees of belief about our beliefs. Mm-hmm. So the self-referencing of that belief structure, how much it knows itself, okay, how much it believes itself, how much, how much, how strongly do you believe in the stories that you believe? Uh-huh. Right. So when we let go of the sense of certainty, which is more or less an illusion that we create to feel safe. Yeah. And we let go of that and we're like, okay, belief. I, I, I have these beliefs to a certain extent. They're probably beliefs that I don't actually think that I believe it. I, I don't believe that I believe it, but I actually do because it's showing up. And examples of this are like subconscious racism is a common example. It's like, I'd rather not believe that I have any of that in me. And then I'll observe that there's something that's going on in my subconscious. Like, huh, that's surprising. It doesn't align with who I feel I am as a person who I believe myself to be. But there was a little thing in there that is like, okay, that was, that was in some sort of subconscious belief structure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So letting go of that sense of certainty, like, well, this is who I am. And this is who I, you know, well, you can have that belief, but if the stronger you hold on to it, the less accurate it becomes. Yeah. And also the, the less you're aware of the belief that you have, the more that it causes problems for you because you're not looking at it. In fact, there's a part of you, like with the racism example, that doesn't even want to think that you think that. Exactly. You don't want to know that you think that you actually secretly believe, you know, that super predators exist or whatever it is that, that might be going on. Right. But you might have that belief and you might notice, you're saying like you might notice a reaction or a way that you behave that would comport with, you know, having some subtle racism in your back. Yeah. And to be clear, what I'm talking about here is just the sense of there are stories that we take in subconsciously Mm -hmm. and and come to believe a little bit or a lot or bits and pieces Mm -hmm. that we aren't knowing ourselves enough to be aware that they're actually part of this belief structure that we have. Because the more aware we are, the more we know ourselves, you know, know thyself is what I was saying. Yeah. Right. The more we become aware, oh, there's this narrative that's it's in my system. Right. And I haven't, I haven't clarified the sense of, of, you know, to, to what extent I'm believing something different. Right. And, and also uh, those unexamined beliefs that we have, they generally show up in our lives because incidences and experiences that we have, circumstances will be created. Like we'll do something that we don't necessarily intentionally want to create. Some shit will happen and then we'll be like, oh, that just happened again because it comports with the belief that, you know, I'm a failure or I don't deserve X Mm -hmm. or whatever, like. In relationships, for instance, this happens a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a really good example where, you know, you had a bad experience with a partner, with a, a lady who treated you poorly or something, or a man, however it is that you, whatever you do with your people, however you orient yourself. I, I prefer the ladies. Okay, right. Uh-huh, that's right. We're both super boring heterosis males anyway, but that's fine. But something happens with a lady. Let's say that you have a history of of women cheating on you. So then that keeps happening because... There's some, you know, what to consider there is that there's some belief that's hidden that you don't even know that you believe where you believe that you're undeserving of monogamy from the other person. Yeah, there can be lots of underlying beliefs that are are so uncomfortable to face. Yeah. And to really acknowledge their existence Uh that we choose to believe that they don't exist. 
Right. And so then we, we're basically believing that we don't believe something when actually we do. Yeah. And then life shows us that belief in circumstances that occur for us that prove that belief to be true. And then again, we go back to ignoring that we believe that again. Until we learn eventually, yeah. if, if at all. But yeah, you know, there, each time these incidences provide opportunities for us to learn. Right. And so the more we're able to feel into ourselves, the more we're able to love ourselves through the entire process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the more that we're able to be present throughout the process and not be, you know, hung up on, well, I used to think this and I used to this, or this needs to be this way in the future, or I worry about what might happen. Mm -hmm. The more we're able to be present to this, we can actually process through and grow through and grow with all these things. And it it comes to the subject of transcendence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's something that's definitely recurring and like very obvious in your book. You know, you just mentioned it, the act of consciously loving yourself at all times, no matter what it is that you're experiencing, which is a real challenge for most of us, you know, because that's not our default. That's not our training. Certainly that's not the way that we're brought up. There's no, yeah, I interviewed uh, Patch Adams one time for this documentary project and his one of his main points that he said is why is there no love class in school? That makes absolutely no sense. There should be a love class in every grade that you take, including up and through your doctorate degree, if that's how far you go. And there's, there's not, there's no discussion about it. And it's certainly something that rubs me the wrong way mm-hmm. because now when you try to talk about love, it's like, people are just like, ah, oh, there he goes again. You know, the cynicism is one, the one, the part of us that's like winning right mm-hmm. now, instead of the part that really treasures life. And I, I have a bit of a different perspective. Okay. I'd say that we are taught, but not in school. Okay. Right. We are basically taught how to love ourselves by how our parents love us. Okay. Yeah. The way that our parents love us educates the child okay as children we that's how we learn this is what it means to be loved this is what it means so if i'm going to love myself this is how i'm going to do it i'm going to do it the way that they're showing me how Mm -hmm. and so every sort of thing where there is an unhealthy or unloving fearful fear in the parent will eventually that's you're basically teaching the child to be afraid instead of to be loving Right. And so that's how all these issues keep coming up is mostly because parents are, are showing their children through their behavior uh, how to be afraid. Yeah. Instead right. of how to love, because those are fundamentally opposing in many respects, because fear constricts the nervous system, whereas love expands the nervous system. Right. And you open to love versus contract and fear. So that's where all these sorts of issues arise. And, you know, I, it would be nice not to need a university level understanding of love in order to to love. I mean, if that was the case, I think our species would be doomed. But I find that if we're just opening ourselves to feel love, right, to feel the knowing and desire to increase the ability to function of that which you love, Mm -hmm. that is all you need. When you open yourself to feel fully, to feel love fully, love guides you. It shows you what to do. It shows you the way to go. It shows you. Mm -hmm. And it's just up to you to choose. Okay, now that it's shown me, am I choosing to follow the guidance of love or am I choosing to follow the guidance of fear? Yeah. And some story that I have about in a belief structure that I have that I may not even know what it is. Right. Which is always the choice. And that's that's also so fascinating because, I mean, 
you know, that's what we do. We have moments of clarity or moments where we're really inspired. We see something that really inspires us and we choose to love. And then we're like, oh, you know what? I should do this. I should write that book or I should go to that audition or whatever it is that lights you up personally, you know, and then you go to do it, but then fear comes back and is like, Oh, no, you're probably not going to win. You're probably going to lose. You're probably going to fail. Fuck it. It's going to be like last time. So make sure it turns out the same way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then we constrict ourselves again and we try to open up again and we try to open up again. Whereas if you're, if you're conscious of loving yourself throughout that whole process, then there's opportunity of transformation. And the more that you're willing to look at Mm. how it is that you're reacting and how it is that you're actually feeling, and really experiencing the fear that you really have mm-hmm. in your heart, then there's an opportunity for transformation. I just think that's so fascinating. Yeah. And it really brings up for me, it's like, I, I feel like I'm a, a, you know, I've done a lot of work. Okay. I've done a lot of processing. Okay. I've been, pro- I'm very processed. very processed. Like fucking Velveeta. All right. Over here. Very fucking processed. You know what I mean? And yet <laughs> I'm very interested in how it is that I fully live my life and how do I how do I continue to enlighten my life and the lives of those around me? And how do I really like be of service in this life? And how do I love more? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I talk a lot in my podcast about the love operating system. How do we, how do we trade out our fear-based greed-based operating system for a love-based operating system where it's really about how do I be of service and how do I love my life more than the people around me? Mm-hmm. And yet I still carry a lot of fear in my heart. And I noticed that, like I noticed reading your book and just even like preparing for the interview, et cetera. Like I noticed, oh, well, there's still some fear there. Like maybe I might fuck it up. You know, that's an ever present thing. But the more that I'm able to just stand back and notice that and allow it to be and love myself, despite the fact Mm -hmm. that I'm a little afraid, then the more that I feel love now. Yeah. There is that. Yeah. High five. All right. All right. Good deal. You know, the thing is about fear and love, because love is felt through the expansion of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't feel fear when you feel love. Right. The thing is that the feelings of fear can still be felt when when your nervous system is expanded. Yeah. Okay. The reason we contract our nervous system is to reduce the intensity of our sensations, reduce the intensity of our feelings, really, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether that be emotional, whether it be a physical sensation, physical feeling or emotional feelings that we're encountering. Because of this... We use fear to contract. We, what I'm saying is we, we contract uh-huh. in order to reduce the intensity. We don't want to be afraid. We, we don't like the feeling. Right. And so we want to reduce the intensity. And the way to reduce the intensity is to constrict our nervous system. Right. That constriction makes it much harder to feel more expansive emotions, such as you know curiosity, gratitude, sense of freedom oneness, all these sorts of things. These are much more expansive emotions that can only be felt when the nervous system is in an expanded state. Okay. When the nervous system contracts, those are, they're sort of like common terminology would be those, those are two high frequency emotions. You can only feel the lower frequency emotions that get through the system. When you're contracted. When you're contracted. And when you're feeling, so let's just go through because this is a, a core tenant of your whole book and philosophy really is that love and these other emotions like gratitude are expansive emotions that expand, literally actually expand your nervous system, whereas fear and those other emotions that are associated with fear contract, they cause actual inflammation in your body, right? In your nervous system. When you choose to contract your nervous system, Uh okay, it's basically incurring an inflammatory response 
that reduces the flow of information. A physiological inflammatory response. Essentially, yeah. Okay. It is a, it is it is physical. Uh-huh. It is also chemical, you know. It yep. is electrical. It's all the same system. Uh-huh. Right? So it's mechanical, it's electric chemical and electrical at the same time. You're constricting it to reduce the, the flow. So that makes it easier for for you to be manipulated. Okay. Because if the amount of information going through your system is constricted then you're, you're buying into some story that's constricting it. Right. Versus I'm, ex- I'm open to the fullness of my experience. Yes. So I may be feeling fear, but I'm not closing myself off from the love that I also have available. To f- uh-huh. I'm not closing myself off from the gratitude. I'm not closing myself off from, from courage. I'm not closing myself off from all these other feelings that are available in a more ex- extent. Ex- Banded state. Right. Yeah. And when you say you choose to be constricted, when you choose to be constricted, you're more easily manipulated. We're talking about you being manipulated by stories that you've created from your past or, or beliefs that you have, have given you, you know, on the you know, news media or whatever. Any or story. people bullying you or saying some shit to you that's yeah. just or, not yeah. good for you. Creating a sense of threat. Yeah. When there's that sense, there was a story of threat, 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 threat. I need to you know, and defend, I need to say, no, I need to do something to prevent uh-huh. versus being open and expansive and welcoming and allowing. Those, those are fundamentally different states. Yeah. So the defensive posture is a contractive posture right. in the body. And even you, you hunch over and yeah. you know, you're, you're minimizing the exposure of vulnerable places in your under, you know, your belly and your neck. This is a very primal sort of behavioral pattern. That's really fascinating. You look at somebody who's afraid and they're hunched over and like cowering in the corner, or yeah. like their neck. They're certainly not standing upright and not extending straight. themselves. Yeah. yeah. And they're, they're not open chested and, you know, welcoming in the sunshine on their you know neck. It's like, no, that's it's quite the opposite. Right. And so you can see people who have chronic fear, like I did for much of my life, do have hunching over. And this is one of the reasons there are so many physical practices in this book. It's because it's all interrelated. Yeah. So it's a matter of training the body, training the nervous system, training all of these different aspects mm-hmm. of your being to handle being open to the fullness of your feelings. Right. To handle being open in a state of love. Yeah. Regardless of the fear. Even if you're afraid. Yeah. Yeah. And to, be, to, to handle the intensity of being present instead of checking out. Yeah. About going back to the past, like you wish it was like that or, you know, the future, like, oh, one day it will be, well, okay, but. Right. Or be present. I better fucking watch out because that shit's going to happen again. For instance, you know, Mm -hmm. there are plenty of different ways that we go about avoiding experiencing the fullness of the present moment. Yeah. It's interesting. And I, I love this idea that, which is true, obviously, that that you can experience intense fear and intense love at the same time. Like, for instance, we're going to go skiing tomorrow. Right. Mm-hmm. And and snowboarding. I snowboard and I love snowboarding for just so many reasons. One of them is that it is a dance with fear. It's scary to go as fast as you can through the trees in the powder. You really have to trust and have faith in your ability And you really have to be practiced and whatnot. But there's a flow state that occurs that's amazing and so beautiful and a oneness with nature that I don't experience anywhere else but on that mountain. It certainly requires you to be very present. Yeah, and it absolutely you have to be super present. But along with the loving of it and how beautiful it is, 
is an intense amount of fear. Like, oh my God, what if I, what if something happens and, and, and trust and faith, but holding those two together creates this incredibly fun experience that is super joyful in part because it's so scary (laughs) and I'm still loving myself and loving the process during, during the ride. Well, I think part of it is just the excitement, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. the, the fear can be amplified through the excitement. Yeah. And so it's that combination, that combination of excitation with, okay, well, that's exciting everything that's present. Yeah. It's exciting the, the amazingness of the experience mm-hmm. and exciting whatever latent fears there are too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a good way for me. That's one of the reasons that I love snowboarding is because it's, it's such a great metaphor for life. You know, how do I flow gracefully? How do I, you know, with with snowboarding, for instance, it's very intuitive. You know, you look to the right and then you think, and it takes a second before your body responds, before the snowboard responds. It's a little different than skiing, although similar, but it takes a minute. You have to like, look, it's like you intend to go right. And then all of a sudden the board follows gracefully. Mm -hmm. It's like an actual expression physically of what grace is. And then again, if I want to turn left, I look left and it it takes a second before it reacts. And then I get into the flow. Now I'm moving with the elements and I'm part of the powder and I'm surfing on it. It's such a beautiful experience. Yeah. I love it. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember why I brought that up again. Because we love it so much. Because we love it so much. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we'll have fun. The problem is there's so many good things that you say in your book that we're not going to have time to get to all of them. Well, but we've covered a little bit of it. One of the things that that's actually on the next page is when you're attached to the thoughts you have about yourself, meaning when you believe the thoughts you have about yourself, such attachments can easily lead you into endless loops of thinking about your thoughts, which severely limits your ability to function. Yep. And I think we've all suffered from that. I know for sure I have. When you get into endless loops and you can't get out of bed, you know, or you just keep failing at things that you're trying to do over and over again, or you don't finish your term paper, whatever it is for you, or you don't, you know, you don't put yourself out there in the dating pool, you know, you don't ask that girl out or that guy out or whatever it is that you're trying to do. You just don't take the risks because you've got this thought in your head that's endlessly looping. They, that's usually some version of. I am not enough. I don't deserve this or there's something wrong here. That kind of thing. That's one route. You know, other things that are pretty common, people you know, ask themselves, why, 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 why? Mm-hmm. And no, and then the, no explanation is ever good enough. So yeah. we keep going into some other explanation as to why and well, what about this and if that and, that and this and that. And so they get so caught up. We get so caught up to a certain degree in looking for explanations to feel okay with things we're not okay with. Right. And so the more attached we are to these thought patterns, the more we get caught up in these stories instead of feeling what's really present, loving ourselves and others in the present moment and being present to what is present. And that's the the sense of, of being detached from reality, being detached from life because life is often uncomfortable. Yeah, right. Yeah, we check out so often. We're not really present because we don't want to feel the fear that we're having or experience the negative beliefs that we have about ourselves because that would be painful. Mm -hmm. So we just pretend that they're not there. We try to escape through. Yeah. Or, or, you know, for instance, we can get caught up in judgment. We Uh get caught up in in problem solving 
we get caught up in distractions of, you know, all right, well, let's get distracted with some really complex video game that takes like a year to master. Right. It's like, okay, that's a good way for me not to be present with, you know, any other aspect of my life. Right. Yeah. Right. Or, or, you know, get caught up in overworking. There goes, there goes that year, but I won the fucking game. Exactly. I saw the credits, the end credits. Know what I mean? Right. I'm no judgment to video game people. I, I've been there. I know because right. I've been there. It could be, you know, book reading. It's like whatever the, the thing is that's drawing people that's out. the escape. Yeah. yeah it's an escape really thing. being present. And, and going into thought mm-hmm. instead of present full awareness that requires the full awareness of your feelings. Yeah. Because there's nothing wrong with video games. There's nothing wrong with books. There's nothing wrong with thinking. Nothing wrong with problem solving. And even judgment. I wouldn't judge the judgment. Right. Right. That's part of it. Yeah. And so because of it, it's more like, Okay, how am I feeling the fullness of my being? Yeah. How am I loving the fullness of this being that I am, this being that I'm a part of? Mm -hmm. How am I being present with the gift of life as it is? Yeah, that's great. That's beautiful. There's two questions I want to ask you, actually. One is about, one of the things you say in your book is, human beings are like bacteria on the skin of our mother earth. Mm-hmm. And this also points to something that's kind of a core tenet of your book and a, and a belief that I carry as well, which is that we are all connected here on this planet. We're all part of the same organism on some level. We certainly are part of life itself. But when you say we are all bacteria, like bacteria on the skin of Mother Earth, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that when you look at life on Earth, right, the life that we are accustomed to is only on the very, very surface. It's really basically where the land meets the air and the water. Mm-hmm. That's the, the very thin, thin layer that human beings live on. When you look at the entire size of the volume of the earth, the earth is incredibly massive and we do not live on all but a very, very small proportion of it. And we are the most pervasive species of all the species, mm-hmm. aside from maybe cockroaches. You know, in, in general, yeah, they're going to win in the end. Well, in terms of a competition, I don't want to be in a competition with cockroaches. No, because they'll kick that, your ass. I think that they probably don't care about they being fucking competition want to kick me. our asses. I think they'll be okay. But that said, when you look at human beings, where we are, where we can be, really, mm-hmm. really only on the surface, the very surface level mm-hmm. of this planet. Yeah. And when you view our Mother Earth as a living being, which she is, Mm-hmm. And that yes. we, we are a part of this living being. Yeah. We, she's our mother. On, that's really literally true. Yeah. She, she gave birth to us, essentially. Mm-hmm. Birth to our species. Mm-hmm. And so by virtue of this, we are an extension of Mother Earth. And she's an extension of us. Mm-hmm. But a much bigger extension. <laughs> and a predecessor also. Right. So when we look at where we are relative to our Mother Earth, we are on her skin. Mm-hmm. And we, when we look at the size of what we are as individuals, we are the equivalent of bacteria on the skin. Right. And so that's what I mean. And how we choose to interact the same way that, you know, there's bacteria on, this, on your skin. Yeah. Right. On my skin, on everyone's skin. Plenty of bacteria. Tons of it. And so. And in our guts and everywhere else. Everywhere else. In yeah. fact, there, you know, the, the, the latest estimate that I saw, the most reliable estimate I saw is on average, an adult has 37 trillion microorganisms in and on their body. Gross. And 30 trillion cells oh, of, yeah. of their own DNA, meaning that 
in terms of the proportion, more than half of us of our being does not have our DNA. Wow. More than half of our being is actually all these microorganisms that we do not inherit directly from any genetic code. That's I mean, that is absolutely fascinating. And and just going back to your earlier point, which is that, you know, we need to look at how it is that we're interacting with the mother that spawned us. And this is kind of an opportunity for spawned is not necessarily the word I would use. Spawned? <laughs> no. No, it, bad. It, it, it sounds like a little, a little closer to bacteria, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think gave birth. Gave birth. Okay. Yeah, let's let's, let's give ourselves some credit. Yeah. You know, and also looking at how it is that, I mean, I think that's part of feel love now. And that's certainly what you and I are about as individuals is really like recrafting the way that we harmonize with nature and how it is that we behave, like really looking yeah. at that. Right. Are we acting as harmful bacteria or beneficial bacteria? Exactly. Are we helping the, the thriving of our mother earth yeah or are we causing her illness and dysfunction right and so when you can say the same thing about bacteria on the skin of a human being mm-hmm. is it causing is it facilitating well-being or is it causing illness right we have the choice it's just a matter of how conscious we are of ourselves and our behavior and how responsible we're choosing to be in the midst of the facts of our existence yeah That's fascinating. It's awesome. I love that. And I also love the idea that we, you know, barely even are, we're we're just barely aware of what's really happening at any given moment in time, that there's so much going on under the surface in reality on a, on every level. And we just have like a, just a teensy bit of awareness. You know, you touched on this on the beginning of, of this interview when you mentioned about ignorance as being an issue. Yeah. All right. And I would say that we are all ignorant to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we are. For ig- sure. Yeah, we are. Because we are always ignoring. Yeah. The vast majority of our experience. We can only process so much. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how much are we ignoring? Are we ignoring our feelings? Are we ignoring the fullness of what we're actually experiencing? Mm-hmm. Are we ignoring what's going on around us? Are we ignoring our connections with each other, with the world as a whole, with the the entire universe? There's a nearly infinite, actually, there is an infinite amount of things we can ignore Mm -hmm. and are ignoring. Right. And so that's part of the whole basis of Feel Love Now is to facilitate this process of being more aware, feeling more so that we can love more in the present moment so that we're living the fullness of our life in wellness. Yeah. And therefore being an integral part of our species and our planet and life itself at all levels Mm -hmm. from that place of fullness and wellness. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's beautiful. And also, I mean, there is something to be said for ignorance as a good thing because we wouldn't be able to focus on anything if we weren't able to ignore other stimuli that were constantly streaming at us. So there's, a certain level of ignorance where it's valuable, where, you know, if I really, really need to focus on, you know, diffusing the bomb, I'm going to ignore the fact that there's people yelling at me or whatever. Know yes. what I mean? Because I'm diffusing the fucking bomb right now. Know what I mean? I got to diffuse it. Yes. Uh, ignorance can be incredibly useful and often is. Yeah. And it can also be incredibly destructive. For sure. And usually is. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's give people credit. Let's I, give people I, credit. I think it's a matter of, you know, it's, it's situational. Right. That's right. And also, like to to your point, and and I think what 
what I'm also all about is like, you know, recognizing being humble in the face of reality and that there is so much going on at all times that I'm completely unaware of. But knowing that like one of my core values is is being of service and being loving because I know that that enhances my experience of life and the experience of those who who are around me mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm being loving and I'm being helpful, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that when we're being helpful as an expression of being loving, it always works. Yeah. When we're being helpful, not as an expression of being loving, that's when you get into some manipulative stuff that winds up backfiring and you have, it's like, I'm helping. I'm, well, yeah, but it's, there's an agenda, right? <laughs> you know, it's, there's like this ulterior motive going on that's it's causing other side effects that you don't really want to face. Or, yeah. It's, that's such a, it's such a, it's such a fucker, man. It's such a fucker. I'm sorry. There's no better word for it. It's such a fucker because you want the, because, from my perspective, you know, uh, and I give credit to the landmark education for, for this, you know, there, there's this whole idea there that, you know, there are two main things that we want to achieve in life are to be right and to look good. Being right for sure. Looking good. If you're more loving towards people and you're generous, that looks good, mm-hmm. but it's thin and it's inauthentic uh-huh. and it doesn't take long to figure out that, as you say, somebody has got like a different agenda. They're just being nice so that they look good so that they can get through it. At some point, the cracks are going to in the armor are going to show and you're going to be tell, able to tell that they're acting because it'll just look bad. The The difference between being authentic and being fake or being manipulative is so subtle. And also, by the way, it just requires a constant checking in. You constantly check in. Am I really being loving for the sake of loving or am I being loving for the sake of looking good? You know, that's part of the practice. Well, I'd say that it's tied into one's degree of self-awareness. It comes back to know thyself. True. Yeah, true. Right. How authentic one is being is is how one is showing up in Mm self-awareness and expressing that vulnerably. Right. That's exactly right. And by the way, I mean, you know, if you're in conversation with somebody and you do have fears come up and you're, you're related to them and you do just say, hey, listen, I'm just I just want you to know I'm really afraid because of this. X, Y, and Z. And I just, I need to get this off my chest so that you know, and I know that is such a huge opening mm-hmm. for you and for the other person. I, you know, the, the, the podcast before this, I, I did this whole thing about the great joy of serving others. And, you know, there's, there's a thing about asking for help mm-hmm. and how, if you actually ask for help, that is being of service because you're asking the other person <laughs> To help you to be of service to you, but you're also admitting that you need help. In our society, like the way that we are, we're like, oh, I'm just gonna grab my teeth and bear it, fucking get it through, man. You know, we just yeah. don't like to show that we're actually afraid. Like you were saying, you know, for so many years you were afraid. I can definitely relate to that myself. You know, how many years was I afraid or depressed, etc.? Yeah, well, seeking help is very vulnerable. Yeah. And and that means that it requires some courage. That's right. And in order to have that courage, you need to open your nervous system up and to be able to allow for it, to feel it. Otherwise, there's like, you know, bullying yourself to try to, you know, meet some agenda, some story about who you think you should be. Right. Exactly. You got to don't fucking cry. You better not fucking cry, Eris, or I'm going to kick your ass or something. I, I don't know. It's, it's, that old thing never made any sense to me. I, I Not that I'm sitting around crying all the time, but if I'm moved by something and I cry, 
that means I know that I'm alive. Yeah. For me, that means I know that I'm in love. And by the way, if something bad happens and I cry, like somebody that I love dies, I'm going to cry because I know that my tears honor that person. Mm -hmm. And I know that my tears are an authentic expression of how I feel in relationship to them in my own consciousness. And if I shy away from that feeling, that emotion, that's just causing trauma in myself. It's, it's causing more inflammation. And that's such a, a common thing. Like we don't really want to experience our emotions, particularly if they're uncomfortable or if they don't look good. Yeah. But that doesn't make them go away. And this could lead to an entire other conversation, actually. I could... Why don't you give it a shot? Uh, sure. So uh, tears um, release cortisol. They're, they release tension. They release stress. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, and that's why babies cry automatically whenever they're experiencing stress, what they're doing is they're getting rid of the stress that's in the system. Hmm. And so even tears of joy, tears of joy are happening because you were holding tension before, or one was holding tension before. And then there's this, oh, and the opening and release of tension, and it's a pleasurable release. So it's not that tears are necessarily an indication of sadness, although it may be because there's stress involved in the feeling of loss, which yeah. is where the sadness is. But the association, like, you know, boys don't cry and all that kind of stuff, right. is actually a cultural artifact of attempting to train boys and men to not be subject to always releasing tension in their nervous systems. Hmm. And the reason for this is it, it gets in the way of dealing with the primary things that men evolved in terms of gender roles over the past you know, million years oh. to hunt, defend, and build. Ah, okay. So when this is good. This is good. I'm glad we're having this conversation. Okay, good. Go ahead. So when, you, when we're hunting or defending or building, we need to be focused on the success of the mission. If we're distracted by our feelings and we're letting out the tension and all this kind of stuff, it's, it's distracting us in, from what's present. And it might be distracting other people. It might be alerting other people. It shows a degree of openness and vulnerability in a situation where you actually want to be hunting and defending or building. You need to be closed and holding the tension. Right. So when you're, when there's situations that it's, the environment is calling upon you to hold tension. If you are releasing tension in the wrong times, that makes you untrustworthy. It makes it unreliable. Hmm. And so there's a cultural artifact about how we evolved to train boys and men to hold more tension. Hmm. Now, there are healthy ways to do this and there are unhealthy ways to do this. This is where we get fucked up pretty much. Yeah. Because the unhealthy way to do this, which is how most of us were taught, is just hold it in. Hold it in. Yeah. Hold it in. Uh -huh. Don't show anybody. Right. You know, that sort of thing. You hold the tension in without any sense of when to release. Right. And how much to release. That's the unhealthy way to do it. Yeah. It's like, like, I really got to pee. I'm just going to hold it, <laughs> hold it until eventually you get a, you get a pee. Okay? Yeah. You're going right? to pee your pants or you're going to die. Something's gonna, yeah, exactly. Or, and then you'll pee your pants. Right. So the notion is that that is the unhealthy approach, mm -hmm. but it's one of the ways that we learn as boys, most especially the healthier way is to actually feel the feelings fully in the midst of it, but not be swayed by it. Right. So to not be reactive to it, like I'm feeling all of the tension. I'm feeling, let's say I'm sad. I'm feeling the sadness or I'm feeling the, the joyful release. You know, let's say I'm so proud of my, you know, children that they did something at school and it fills my heart with joy. And normally I would just 
oh, my, you know, my tears would just be flowing down my face Mm -hmm. to release that tension. I don't have to. I can actually allow it to flow through my nervous system. This is called grounding. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So the masculine nervous system, and I'm not going to say male per se, this is actually a masculine quality of the nervous system to ground out, to, to ground, to basically be like, to function as essentially a pipe where you're allowing the flow of emotions to flow through you instead of being more like a river. And so it would essentially almost like interfere with your flow, almost like pollute if it was a contaminant. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it, it functions differently. And that is the healthier way to do it because you're still allowing for the truth and the honesty and the full feeling of the experience, but you're not being swayed by it. Right. You can still have that experience and accomplish the mission at the same time. Exactly. Because you're experiencing the, and that's something that I think is, is absolutely accurate. I mean, it's, it's more challenging for sure. It is. Uh, and it requires training. And that's what a that's lot true. of, that's what a lot of the masculine arts, so to speak, used to be about uh-huh. is training the nervous system to deal with extremely high tension situations mm-hmm. where you're not buckling, where you're not bursting, where, you know, it's, it's a challenge and adjust challenge right. and adjust. It's like push yourself to the limit and then rest. You say masculine arts, you mean like, I mean like martial arts, for okay. instance, yeah. or, or other practices, you know, men's work. When you look at a lot of cultural, indigenous cultural traditions have things where they are preparing boys for manhood. Oh yeah. Right. Vision quests and such. And yeah. those kind of things. Where you, and, yeah. and various tests and things like this, where right. the, the boys are being challenged. Yeah. And it's, it's to train them to handle the vicissitudes of showing up in the masculine roles. Right. Yeah. Hmm. That's and, good. And that's gone away in Western society mm-hmm. to a great extent. There's been this sort of gender neutralization and gender confusion, not knowing what gender is. Yeah. Uh, thinking it's an artificial construct. It's actually not really an artificial construct, but it has many faces. Right. Some of which are cultural and therefore adaptive. And so because of that, there's a, that's what I was saying. This can easily be another half hour conversation, but there's a sense that, that when we are dealing with, with tension in a healthy way, there are two fundamental ways to deal with tension in a healthy way. One is to ground it out. The other is to allow it to flow. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and by grounded out, I don't mean avoid it. I mean, allow it to flow through you without it affecting you. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think uh, for me personally, I feel like I, I do that. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of how I operate. And now granted, I've had like a lot of training as an actor yeah. and you know, people think that's how you fake it, but it's not really like that. It's more like, how do you actually feel the emotions that are being expressed by this character? And so then you have to feel those in yourself and you also have to, there's a lot about preparing yourself as an actor so that you can be a vessel, which means that you have to confront a lot of the beliefs that you have yeah. about yourself so that you can let those go so that they don't interfere with the the character that you're trying to portray on the stage or on the screen yeah. so that you can really, you know, express that personality so you can tell that story. So I would say, by the way, that really good acting is not pretending. No, it's, it's absolutely and, not. It's the and opposite so when, when people learn how to act, yeah. They have to get away from this idea that it's somehow I'm just going to pretend to be somebody else. Yeah. It's not really true. No, it's not true at all. Yeah. And people are like, oh, you're just an actor. You're just faking it. No, it's not. It's, it's the opposite of that. If you're really doing good acting, you're totally real. You're completely invested in that belief structure. 
you're being as authentic as humanly possible. And the training of that is also something where you are grounding out the emotions because you, you, you have to, in the moment, you know, of, of acting, you have to be able to express the emotions of the character, but also you yourself may have be having emotions about being on stage or what else is going on. Or you might see something off stage that could be distracting for you, but you have to just let that go. You have to be grounded. Mm -hmm. And I think even the idea, the thought of being grounded while you're experiencing emotions is a gateway to experiencing those emotions and being grounded. How do I be grounded while I'm experiencing this emotion? The answer will come. Yes. So good. I'm glad we got through that. (laughs) I do want to ask you about, so you mentioned, you know, that for years you were acting out of fear that you were really, you know, a fearful person. Yes. And I'm just wondering, like, I, I know you from a transformational space. Yeah. People are often surprised when they meet me to, these days to find out that that was the case. So I'm just wondering, like, was there a, was there some significant event that occurred that had you wake up and be like, oh, wait a minute, I need to, I need to feel love now. Or was it just a gradual process? I don't know. This could be a huge story or it could be a nutshell story. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But I just am curious, like, what? What happened to Eras where you went from being this closed off, fearful guy to being somebody who's truly invested in being loving and being of service? And feeling fully and opening my nervous system and not being so contracted. Yeah. It's been a process for sure. And I think that the, the instigator for this, aside from, you know, life kicking my ass mm-hmm. and then looking for, looking for answers the first step. What I found was that when I experienced plant medicines that are heart openers, mm-hmm. where my nervous system was expanding, okay, and I, I got to feel what it's like to have an expanded nervous system for the first time since I was maybe a very small child. Okay. So that's because you kind of had a, not to get too deep into it, but you had a challenging upbringing. Isn't that right? Yeah, I would say very. <laughs> okay. I've heard a little bit about yeah. how it was for you somehow, but and you can share as little or as much as you want about that. But needless to say, it was you had a rough go with the parenting and being taught, taught how to love. Well, I would basically put it this way. I don't when I was taken out of like daycare and preschool from the starting around five years old, from roughly that time to when I was an adult mm-hmm. or close to it. I don't remember actually being what I would now consider happy. Okay. In fact, I don't remember anything that I would consider to be real joy mm-hmm. for for well over a decade wow. of my life. Mm-hmm. And so I would put it in that frame. Okay, that's good. And that had to do with your family situation, et cetera. Yeah, and also legacy. You know, my mother is a child, first child born in a, in a refugee camp to concentration camp survivors after, after okay. the war. So there's there's legacy of intergenerational trauma um, that passed on to her that passed on to me then there's you know very poor choices about how to handle that trauma and other things that were you know related to fear 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 more fear and fear was how i was taught to live to survive yeah and so i learned how to survive i know how to survive very well but how to thrive that's something else that took me until i was getting into my 40s before i started to learn Hmm. Well, for what it's worth, I'm sorry that you had to go through all that. You know, I'm, for your family. I, I'm okay with it. The sense is that when I've learned to, to love, 
fully, I can love without any sense of resentment. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, I get to be this amazing person that I am. I get to show up in the present moment. I don't need to fixate on the past. Mm-hmm. I, I get to be, you know, an example for others to, to show that it's entirely feasible to go from extreme fear to extreme love. Yeah. That's great. You were talking about how, you know, really going from a fear space to then being somebody who's super loving and super confident and comfortable with yourself. I'm not saying it exactly the way that you just said it, (laughs) but first of all, maybe you could just restate that. Yeah. What I was talking about was this notion that having gone from a a state in my life of being really living on the basis of extreme fear Mm -hmm. to being able to let that go and learn how to open my nervous system, learn how to be really allowing myself to feel all the feelings that I was avoiding, to love myself and others as fully as I'm able and to be more present to be able to do this. So that allows me to be an example for anyone else who's also in a situation like, oh, I'm experiencing a lot of fear. It's the basis of my, I'm like, uh, I can't imagine not living in so much fear. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, well, I got news for you. It's possible. It's here's, yes, here's an example of someone who has come from a place of living in extreme fear to living in extreme love. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I think, I, I guess what I'm picking up on earlier, I mentioned, you know, a lot of people might find that like an arrogant thing to say, you mm-hmm. know, like I really love myself and I've really gotten to a place where I'm able to love more, but it doesn't come from that place at all. It's not like a egotistical stand that you're taking or just a, a, a you know, a, a supposition that you're making. Like here I am, like now I'm, look at me now I'm loving just so that you look good. It's a real authentic, actual experience. And yeah. I, all I can say is like having known you for like two years now and et cetera, and spent like a considerable amount of time with you. I've never known you not to be that way. Mm-hmm. Like I've never known you not to be a loving, balanced, grounded dude. Know what I mean? So I can, I can, I can attest to your, to the statement that you are a loving person, but I feel like without question, people who are living in extreme fear are thinking no way. Is that possible? Like, I can't, I can't even do that. I can't even imagine, especially with the level of confidence and authenticity that you, you stated. And I guess you've already said, look, if I could do it, you could do it. Yeah. But, you know, maybe for those folks who are really like, just like, fucking man, I don't know what to do. I'm so terrified all the time. You know, like, what would you say to them Aside from read your book, like what would you say to them to kind of get them to start the process? Just read the title. <laughs> you know, as I said you know, in, the, in the early part of the podcast, it's a memory aid to know what to do when you don't know what to do. Yeah. Okay. So when you're coming in from a standpoint of, I'm so afraid or I'm so this, I'm so that. What do I do? What do I do? Yeah. The first thing you do is you feel. Yeah. You feel yourself. You feel your environment. You feel what's actually going on in you and around you. Yeah. The next thing is you love, you love yourself, you love others, you love the world, you love life and you do it now. Right. And let go of this notion that you can solve the past or fix the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or that you're in control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also another way to, 
I mean, certainly for me, you know, I think about what do, what do I do in those situations? And a lot of times I just go to gratitude. Like, what can I be grateful for right now? Like, if I find that I'm personally in a, a maximum fear state, you know, or just having problems, I have to stop and just be like, okay, wait, what can I be grateful for right mm-hmm. now in my life? And then that automatically lends itself to being in a more loving state. Yes. Like with, would you like me to talk about that? Sure. Well, I just want to give this example first, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, with my, with my wife, right. Obviously that's the person I'm going to fight with the most. I think it makes sense that one would fight with their partner, the most of people that they fight with. But what I, and, it, and by the way, it's not like we get in a knockdown, drag out fights. It's nothing crazy like that. You know, we just, sometimes I'll get angry about whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I like, I, I always find myself coming back to what am I grateful for in her? You know, I just start thinking about all the awesome qualities that she has mm-hmm. that that I'm so lucky to have in her. She loves me. She supports me. She's like, you know, she's supportive of my mission and what I'm up to. Like, that's 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 crazy, you know, and that she's like very generous and she's. You know, I mean, the things that like the things that I get frustrated about are good qualities. You know, she's like more organized and clean than I am or whatever it is like. But the point I'm trying to make is (laughs) even though sometimes we fight about legitimate things that would make me mad, so to speak, I always go back to what am I grateful for? How lucky I am to be with this person and that she chooses to be in relationship to me. And then I go back to the choice that I'm making to be in relationship with her. And I'm grateful for that choice. And then that brings me back to balance. And I'm able to let go of all of the forces that are kind of taking me away from the relationship or having it look bad or, you know, whatever the ideas, mm-hmm. you know, taking her for granted, taking the space for granted. Mm-hmm. And then that puts me automatically back into a state of love. And it makes, gets me present to who I am and who we are to each other. Now, um, you were going to, you were going to dive into some sort of pointers or that kind of thing too, right? Well, just to address what you're saying here, yeah. the reason that this works the way that it does is that gratitude is one of the more expansive emotions. Mm-hmm. So in order to feel gratitude, you need to expand your nervous system quite wide. Right. Because otherwise, if, if you're in contraction, you can't feel the gratitude. Yeah. So that's why it works that way. And in fact, the more you can be grateful for and gratitude practices are all about this. Yeah. It's just like a... Uh, side door to opening your nervous system to train you to this is how you open up right right and then what happens is you come to a state of allowance instead of conflict yeah because there's like oh there's so much here i don't have to like everything yeah i can still appreciate so much that that is present right exactly yeah that's beautiful that's really great and you know i think like a lot of people, again, I'm addressing the cynics here because I, I, I am one a lot of the time. And just I think that's a huge thing in our society. It's like, you know, you think, oh, my God, he's going to talk about a gratitude list. Come spare me with the gratitude list. It's such a <laughs> it's such a personalized thing. Simply asking yourself, what am I grateful for? And then letting the answers spill out. That's all you have to do. You don't have to make a 10, a top 10 list or keep a journal or anything like that. You really just have to get present to what am I grateful for? I know something for me also that that's super helpful in times of upheaval is like, okay, wait, hold on, stop. There's a roof over my head. You know, I'm safe. I'm warm and I have food to eat. You know, like if it's really bad, I go there. 
I'm like, okay, now I can, now I can think about what, what comes next in times of like crisis. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's great. That's a really beautiful way for us to open up. And it's so interesting to hear you say, you know, when in, in a state of gratitude, we really open up our nervous system, which automatically makes us able to love more. Yeah. And I would add that, sure, the asking these questions, what, what do I have to be grateful for? What can I be grateful for right now? Are useful prompts. And in addition to that, a lot of spiritual practices and religious practices have been really about practicing um, integrating gratitude into your life. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, saying grace before meals and stuff like oh, this. Yeah. This is all about gratitude, expressing gratitude as a practice mm-hmm. so that it's not something that you have to remember. Oh yeah. I have stuff to be grateful for because I'm so pissed off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It's, you don't have to anymore because it's a, it's a default. Like, okay, I'm aware of what I'm grateful for. I'm aware of, you know, waking up in the morning. Yeah. I'm grateful for, uh, like the the sunshine. I'm I'm grateful for the rain. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for the breeze on my cheek. Yeah, like having that level of awareness in a state of openness allows for this flood of gratitude to be present all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And living from that place is living in a in a loving state. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what the basis of all these practices and why they are, have been encouraged for, you know, a few thousand years. Yeah. Yeah. I know for me, grace is such an important thing. I really have to presence myself to the food, the meal, all the people that brought the, the food to me, all the ways that I got that, the truckers, mm-hmm. you know. Don't forget the truckers. I mean, seriously, <laughs> they, they're pulling their weight, man. You know, all of the people, all of the different hands that, that got the food to the table in front of me. And then consider whether I, you know, there's a Zen thing about considering whether, whether your virtue and practice deserve the food that you're about to receive, mm-hmm. you know, and as you, as you eat the food and not to be greedy, you know, like that's also a, certainly that's a religious practice that is indoctrinated, that is in that culture and in that way, that religion so that people experience more gratitude automatically, but it's such a beautiful tradition too. I often think about that, you know, mm-hmm. and then, uh, and then ritualizing things, you know, is another way, like the ritual of grace, your morning ritual, whatever your morning ritual is. Like, I know for me, I get up, I, I have to meditate in the morning now. And if I don't, it's a problem. And I know it's, <laughs> I know it's a problem. So then I do it. I meditate for bare minimum 10 minutes every day, usually between a half an hour and an hour. If I, if I can, and, but also just like making tea, it could be like the way making your bed in the morning, those kind of things, like really ritualizing and being grateful for your life, starting off the day that way, no matter what dreams you may have had, et cetera. Like it's such an important practice to, for me to embody a love operating system Mm -hmm. where I'm actively living in love as much as I possibly can in this moment. So that's great. And I would add to that, that there is a bit of a difference between having a practice and having a ritual. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because the practice is really about practicing in order to achieve something. The ritual is, is beyond that because it becomes an artistic expression. Mm-hmm. It becomes an art, a creative expression. Yeah. And it's an extension of one's individual sense of identity, I guess, mm-hmm. that's going into and with something. Certainly there are rituals that are communal in nature, but they're 
they're tied to identity mm-hmm. in a way that practice is uh, not necessarily it can be tied more to achieving you know training for, for purposes for instance right right yeah that's good that's a good distinction okay cool so the last thing that i want to chat about is you know one of the things that you mentioned earlier is like on your journey to feeling love now writing this book being who you are now being this expression that is now Ares Asha all right <laughs> he's a love sponge all right big time this guy all right pretty juicy love sponge pretty juicy <laughs> all right he's like you're a very loving person now and it's clear based on your testimony <laughs> that you were a very fear-based person before and you mentioned you know that that you Part of the thing for you was that you experienced certain plant medicines, which really opened your heart. And you're like, oh, my God, what is this feeling and how do I get more of this naturally? So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Like, what was your first plant medicine that really had you feel that way? The first one that opened that opened my heart, I believe it was a combination of uh, sassafras, kana, and mistletoe. So a relatively unusual blend. But basically, these are heart openers. They're natural sources of MDMA. That's a primary ingredient in terms of being a primary active ingredient. It's not the only active ingredient, but it's a primary active ingredient. Anyways, the point of all this is to say that before I'd been such so constricted in my nervous system, it's like always in a state of fear, so much so that to experience what it was like to be really open really open and to be around people that were not harming me. Mm -hmm. They were not threatening me. If anything, they were there just happy to love me as much as I was happy to love them. Yeah. And that changed everything for me. It's like, that is what I've been missing. And I just, before that point, I just didn't know any better. Right. I'd gotten used to being so clenched and shut down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Obviously, it's important when opening the nervous system to have a very strong, safe container mm-hmm. that allows for it to be a, a healing experience. Yeah. To allow people to see when it's safe to open, how much to open, mm-hmm. and to actually be able to get that feedback. Yeah. Because otherwise, it can be dangerous to open into unsafe situations. Sure. And then it becomes problematic. So that's, but that's true of medicines in general. Yeah. You know, medicines can be very helpful. They can, they can facilitate healing and, and wellness. And they can also facilitate illness. It really depends on the nature of what is the, the need of the individual. What is the context that is, that this is occurring. And, and then, you know, how are they navigating it? How are they working with it? Yeah. So all these things need to, um, they need to, to be respected Yeah. in order to result in desirable outcomes. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because I know for me, you know, I, I occasionally use MDMA myself and, but the context is not like going to a rave and drinking, not that, you know, do whatever you're going to do. Okay. But that to me is just a, such a terrible idea and such a waste of good medicine because it's like then you're mixing a drug that's a super harp, heart opening drug with a depressant that's going to make you feel just super shitty the well, it's next a day. Numbing agent. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I just, again, going back to what you were saying, like really respecting, creating like a safe space and like, you know, ritualizing the experience in some manner is so important. I know for, for, for my wife and I, like we occasionally use it if we find ourselves in a place where we're just kind of in battle or we just feel like there's too much tension, we're not communicating well, we'll, we'll take a, a day on a weekend and take some MDMA and just sit and talk. And I can't tell you, I mean, hashtag the original intention of MDMA was for couples therapy. Like that's what it was developed for. And that makes complete sense to me because I know for, for us, it does put us in a space where we're just like, all of a sudden we're like, oh my God, like all these things that were frustrating me, I completely see why you were acting the way that you were. And I see why I was triggered the way that I was triggered and where I was coming from. And then we're able to like have this really respectful dialogue Mm -hmm. and it's like a container that's open when we open it. And when we close it, we close it and then we respect it. And then the next day we just kind of (laughs) chill and we don't, you know, cause there are some repercussions right with that, that medicine where, you know, your, your serotonin levels go down the next day. So you want to be careful and make sure that you're taking care of yourself. And there are ways to replenish the neurotransmitters that get depleted and so on. What happens is once you're so open, Once you get to the point where having an opener for your nervous system doesn't do much because your nervous system is already so open, it's like, okay, I'm already there. Then it doesn't become depleting, really. So the sense of depletion lessens based upon the the difference. I know that in the early days when I was experiencing this, I would feel very, very depleted and have all sorts of jaw problems and, you know, from clenching a jaw and that kind of thing. And more open I became, the, the less... Well, the less of a difference I would notice, I would observe when having these medicines. Yeah. And also the less repercussions in terms of different needs for replenishment and any sort of jaw locking or other stuff. It just go away because it was nothing that I was holding on to anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing to resist. And that just changed the nature of it. And now it's more, I've experienced, I've experienced occasions where I, I had the medicine. And there was almost no difference hmm. in terms of my state of being because I was already that open. Yeah. Hmm. That's fascinating. And just to be clear, it's not like you're abusing this medicine. You're doing it every day. Like, oh, no, this is, this is not the kind of thing that I mean, and why, why would I bother if like if it, if it's right. lessening returns, if I'm already there, like, then I don't need it. Right. Exactly. It doesn't or it doesn't that's not even need as it's, it's not even benefiting from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It's like a way for me to check in these days and see where am I really at? Mm-hmm. Because as you pointed out, I mean, it's essentially quite revelatory. Yeah, it you, really is. It, it, because when it opens your nervous system, you get to f- receive this information that you'd actually been shutting yourself off from. Exactly. And that new level of insight shows you things yeah. when things have been hidden. Mm-hmm. But when you're not hiding things then you're already seeing what's already there. Yeah. So just having that confirmation, like, oh, okay, I, oh, there was some stuff that I was hiding. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't aware of it because I was clenching down and not really, I wasn't quite aware of that hidden pocket, that hidden corner over there. Or it may be that just a verification. Oh yeah, I really am in that open state. And how reassuring to know that there aren't any dark things that are hiding around there. And that's a wonderful revelation in and of itself. Yeah, that's great. 
That's great because you process so much of the trauma. Yeah, and and Del, Del handled it. Yes, and in addition to the trauma, there's just the the, the the honesty because I mean, so much is made about trauma mm-hmm. as being like it's like the enemy to be vanquished, right? And I see it as just an indication of a need for love or a a calling for love, right? Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. All right, great. Well, we need to wrap it up here. Yeah. So first of all, if you haven't already, pick up this book. It's really good. Feel Love Now by Ares Asher. It's available on Amazon and such? It is. Okay, perfect. Excellent. Definitely, I want to have another conversation. So we'll do like a part two of this interview if you're down. Happy to. Sick. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between myself and my very good friend, Ares Asher. Talking about love and love operating system and being of love, being in a loving state, being of service. If you want to contribute to this podcast and keep this work going, please go to patreon.com backslash lunacy podcast and join our team. Uh, if you want to hear more about Eras, you can follow him here and also social media wise. You got some handle or something like that? I do. And basically everything's on erasasher.com. Okay, perfect. Go to erasasher.com. E-R-E-Z-A-S-C-H-E-R. Dot com. Very good. Yeah, we love you. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Subscribe, you know, leave a review. Share with your friends. If you got something out of this, send it to your friend. Post it on your things. Okay. All right. Much love, everybody. How?